You're listening to the Treasuring Christ Church podcast. At TCC, we believe that church isn't just like a family, but it is a family. We hope you're encouraged by listening to God's word today, but we would love to see you on Sundays at 1030. For more information, check us out online at tccannarbor.com. Hey, we're going to be in the Gospel of Matthew today. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, we celebrate Advent. uh, And in our celebrating of Advent, uh, it's really a celebration of um, of awaiting the arrival of our Savior. Uh, we, in, in many ways today, we, we have already experienced the first coming of Christ, so we're no longer awaiting that coming. We're awaiting not His first coming, but His second coming, because Jesus said that not only uh, would He come once, but He will come again. And, and so we celebrate His second coming, but many, in many ways during this season of Advent, as we, as we look back at Christ's first coming, we almost want to put our shoes uh, put ourselves in the shoes of the people of Israel as they awaited uh, the arrival of the Messiah, of Jesus, uh, to, to kind of feeling what it was like to anticipate His coming, uh, to stirring up our hearts' affections for uh, God's faithfulness and, and the promises He made and how He kept those promises and, and what it means for Jesus to come. Uh, in many ways, as we, as we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating something that's truly miraculous, that's truly astonishing, that God became man, that God Himself took on flesh and dwelt among us, as was born as a helpless baby and grew up uh, to be uh, a man who would live a perfect life and who would die on the cross and who would rise victoriously from the grave. God did that so that he could rescue us from our sin, to forgive us of our sin and to bring us into forever relationship with him so that the good news of God coming to us and for us could be proclaimed not just to some people but to all people. What took place there in the first century outside of Jerusalem, uh, in Jerusalem and Bethlehem and then uh, uh, outside of Jerusalem on the cross uh, and and ultimately in Jesus' resurrection from the dead is to be for all people everywhere. It's good news of great joy for all people, the angels will say in Luke chapter 2 verse 10. That's what we celebrate at Advent. And, and every year at Advent, it's somewhat of a... Um, <clears throat> Somewhat of a challenge to to really find out how to how to speak uh, to this topic in a way that uh, perhaps is fresh. Uh, it's such a, a familiar uh, story, the story of Christ's birth. If you've come up in the church, or or even if you've just been in our culture, uh, the the story of the birth of Christ is uh, is well known, uh, and perhaps one of the greatest articulations. Uh, clearest articulations, I should say, of it is in the Charlie Brown Christmas special. You hear it so clearly uh, proclaimed, even there. It's something that we're familiar with, and, and yet there's this desire for it not just to uh, to be a familiar story that lacks significance and meaning. And, and yet, at the same time, the worst thing you can do is to become too creative uh, with what God has already so clearly given us. And, and, and so in many ways, we look back in the Old Testament to God's promises of the Savior coming. We look in the birth narratives in the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke to see how it unfolded. Um, we can look at other places in the New Testament, especially to see the significance of the birth of Christ. Well, this year, I want us to be in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew uh, chapters 1 through 2. And, and we're going to do the unusual thing of spending three weeks in the genealogy of Matthew 1, 1 through 17, before uh, the Sunday before Christmas, looking at the birth narrative in verses 18 through uh, through 25. 
Um, and the reason I want to do that is because I think the genealogy of Jesus, which uh, some uh, times is, is often referenced, no doubt you have to get through it to get to the uh, account of the birth of Christ in verse 18. It's often rushed through uh, or maybe quickly noted its significance, and, and we don't really give it the, the time that it's due to really unpack uh, what it means and why it's important. And in doing so, I think we miss out uh, on some of the greatest uh, riches that are here in the Gospel of Matthew of what I think um, Matthew is trying to communicate to us as it records uh, the genealogy of Jesus. Uh, the genealogies really are um, a picture of both waiting as well as fulfillment. Uh, Jesus' genealogy remind us of the, the waiting that took place from generation to generation for the promise of the Messiah, but they also uh, point us to God's faithfulness and seeing His promises come to pass over generation and generation and generation. And in fact, we've been walking through uh, Genesis in our origin series, which we're pushing pause on for this Advent series. And uh, just this past week, we looked at Genesis 3.15, and there in the midst of judgment, God gives a promise. And that promise is that through the offspring of Eve, He's going to crush the head of Satan. Even though, the, even though Satan will bruise the heel of the offspring of Eve, that that promise of an offspring to come in Genesis 3.15 goes all the way up to Matthew 1.21 that announces that Mary's offspring, the son that she's going to give birth to, that, that has no earthly father, that is born miraculously to this virgin Mary, is going to come. His name is Jesus, and he will save his people from their sins. From Genesis 3.15 to, to Matthew chapter 1, God's people have been waiting and looking for a child who's going to come and provide the victory and the blessing that God promised long ago and throughout the Old Testament. That's, that's what we're, we're looking at when we look at the genealogy of Jesus, this waiting for God to fulfill His promises and God's faithfulness and fulfilling them uh, from one generation to the next. And so the next three weeks we're going to look at verses 1 through 17 in depth, unpacking its significance uh, and so we begin uh, by looking at Matthew 1.1, and I just want to read through uh, this passage, and then we're going to focus our attention and effort, especially on verses 1 through chapter, uh, verses 1 through 6 uh, today. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab, the father of Nishan, and Nishan, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, and at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel, the father of Zerubbabel, 
and Zerubbabel the father of Abihu, and Abihu the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Akim, and Akim the father of Elihud, and Elihud the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. See, after introducing Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, Christ not the last name of Jesus, but the title of Jesus, Jesus the Messiah, Uh, a term uh, in the Old Testament that referenced this promised one, this anointed one that was going to come, Jesus is introduced in a unique way. He's introduced in a a non-chronological way. He's called the son of David and the son of Abraham. Uh, In in doing so, um, we we see that, that, that Matthew is presenting something significant about Jesus, that Jesus, this Messiah, is from the line of David and from the line of Abraham. In other words, to say, Jesus the Messiah is coming to fulfill the covenant promises that God made to David and that God made to Abraham. You see, verses 2-17 through 17 break down how God brought about Jesus' birth in this way through the line of David and ultimately through the line of Abraham. Both Matthew and Luke provide genealogies of Jesus in different ways. Matthew begins with it in, in such a way as to say, this is how God and, and, and his faithfulness through uh, all that has taken place in the Old Testament uh, has come to fulfill those promises now in the birth of Jesus. And, and rather than starting with Jesus and going all the way back to, the, uh, to Adam, as Luke does, what Matthew does is he begins... Uh, here by starting with Abraham and then tracing how God and his faithfulness has gone from Abraham all the way to Jesus. And you can cross-reference Matthew's genealogy uh, with the Old Testament in various places, um, and, and you'll see that there's, there's consistency uh, through these genealogies. However, there are uh, some differences, and Matthew has structured his genealogy in a way to make a point. In fact, there are some places where uh, there's some gaps as you look at other places in the Old Testament uh, from from what Matthew records here. But I don't think it's because he doesn't know the accurate genealogy of Jesus, but I think he does so in a way that, that highlights and, and really focuses in on the significance of David, uh, that Jesus is, is the promised king uh, from the line of David that's going to come. In addition to that being that promised king, he's also the one through whom the blessing of Abraham is going to come. And, and he makes this point in talking about how there's 14 generations between uh, each of these significant uh, markers. And, uh, and that, that significance of 14 doubled the number of seven. And some people have pointed out how David's name has three uh, and the Hebrew has three letters, and the significance of those letters add up to the title 14, or to the number 14, and, and perhaps Matthew's making that uh, emphatic point that Jesus really is the, the promised Davidic son uh, who's come to, uh, to establish God's kingdom. Matthew, indeed, is going to make that point very clearly and consistently throughout the Gospel of Matthew, and, and so it shouldn't surprise us that he does so here in the beginning. But, but the significance of all of this, as, as basically what the genealogy does is recounts the history of Israel, starting with when God established uh, the nation of Israel through his promise to Abraham, going all the way down, even through exile, 
now to the time of Jesus and shows us that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel's history. He's the one through whom the covenant blessings of God in the Old Testament have come to pass. They've they've been fulfilled through him. He is the promised Davidic king. He is the offspring of Abraham who brings blessing to Israel and to the nations. Knowing God and enjoying the benefits of being united uh, to him are now available to all who would believe in Jesus as the promised Messiah. That's what Matthew's genealogy is unpacking. It's highlighting for us these three names that he he kind of gives this summary. Jesus, David, and Abraham. And then he starts with Abraham in verse 2. And then in verse 6 transitions to David. And then uh, ultimately as he gets down uh, through the, the deportation to Babylon, exile into Babylon, he gets to Jesus. And it's safe to say that the genealogy isn't just uh, unpacking history for us but it's actually packed with rich theological truth uh, that I don't want us to miss. Uh, it's truth that helps us to understand Jesus' first coming as well as to, uh, to deepen our anticipation of his second coming. If I could break it down this way, over the next three weeks, what we're going to do is to look uh, at what this genealogy unpacks for us about Jesus. Today we're going to see in verses 2 through 6 that, that Jesus is the son of Abraham, who is the promised one to bring God's blessing to all nations. We're, we're going to see uh, next week in Matthew 1, 7-11, that, that Jesus is the son of David, who is the promised one to establish God's kingdom. And then we're going to see in Matthew 1, 12-16, that Jesus is the promised one to lead his people out of exile. You see, over the next three weeks, I, I want us to see why the genealogy of Jesus is good news. And why, it, why it's packed with such rich theological truth that's good news not only uh, for Israel uh, back then, but for us today. And, and so uh, the, the genealogy begins after the summary in verse 1 with Abraham, the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. This, this really takes us to the beginning of Israel. And what I want to do today is to, to really look back at God's dealing with Abraham and unpack for us the significance of Jesus being the son of Abraham. And the first thing I want us to see if we go back to Genesis chapter 12 is that God established a people for himself through Abraham. You see, the background to Genesis chapter 12 begins uh, in, in really the series that we've been walking through up uh, until this week in Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, the, the origins of, of really all things, not only of creation and of man and woman and, uh, and the entrance of sin into the world, but also uh, humanity uh, that unfolds in chapters 4 through 11 is a pretty bleak picture. Uh, and in fact, it comes to climax in chapter 11 when uh, the people of the earth gather at the tower at Babel um, and they build this tower seeking to make a name for themselves and to gain recognition before God, basically coming together, pulling all of their power and resources, seeking to make a name for themselves. And, and ultimately, it wasn't in fulfillment of God's plan for them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Instead, they're all coming together. Um, and, and in this way, uh, God brings judgment upon them, confuses their language, and spreads them out over the earth. And and in the midst of that, in the midst of him judging and spreading the peoples of the earth all out over the earth, uh, he calls to himself one man, Abram, 
and through Abram, who becomes Abraham, promises to make a nation, a people for himself. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And in you, he says, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, God promised to make Abram a great nation. The, the very thing that the people at Babel were trying to do for themselves, God does graciously for Abram. He calls Abram to himself and he says, I'm going to make you, tiny Abram, into a great nation. Abram and his wife Sarai, who's become Sarah, they have no children at this time. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you the land uh, that becomes Israel, he's going to say. And then he ends with this final point, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. You see, God's plan of, uh, of bringing about redemption into the world that he promises in G Genesis 3.15 comes to, uh, to take on the character that God is ultimately going to do that somehow through Abram and his offspring. And th that would ultimately become Israel. This is God's plan to bring salvation and blessing to all nations. He begins by choosing one nation. Not, as a plan unto, not for them to be a nation unto themselves, uh, and, and not for God just to have them and them only, but ultimately for them to be the, the very means through which God would bring salvation and blessing to all nations. So God establishes a people for himself through Abraham. And this promise gets reiterated time and time again throughout the early parts of Genesis. I can't go through all of them because of time, but just jot these down. Genesis 18, verse 18. Genesis 22, verse 18. Genesis 26, verse 4. Genesis 28, verse 14. In all of these places, you see the promise that was made in Genesis 12, especially 2 through 3, reiterated by God. And not only is it reiterated to Abraham, but it's reiterated to Isaac and it's reiterated to Jacob. It's as if to say that, that God is saying, this promise that I've made, uh, I'm going to, come to, I'm going to, to bring it to completion. And so we see that God establishes a people for himself through Abram, Abraham. And, and the significance of that, as we look at the birth of Jesus uh, and the way the genealogy begins, uh, I didn't point this out, but just another connection that connects us back uh, to Genesis, is the way Matthew begins is very reminiscent of something that we see in Genesis. Particularly, he begins by saying, this is the book of the genealogy of, and in this case, it's of Jesus. But if you go back and you look in Genesis, we talked about this kind of structural point uh, that helps give structure to Genesis. In Genesis 2-4, we see this statement, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And we see how it goes on in, in chapter 5. It says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. We see this structure that continues throughout Genesis that gives shape and, and kind of structure to the book of Genesis. is ultimately saying, um, what, what God did in, in creation in Genesis, he's doing a work of new creation through Jesus. And the, the, the promise that God made to Abraham to make a great nation, a people for himself, is coming to its fullest fruition in Jesus. The promise that God would make a Abraham into a great nation and through Abraham's offspring bring salvation and blessing to all people, the focus and the fulfillment of that is coming to pass in Jesus. Jesus is the son of Abraham, through whom God established a people for himself, Genesis 12, 1-3 tells us. 
But here's, here's the significance of God establishing a people for himself that I want us to see today. I want us to understand that grace is the basis of our relationship with God. And, and we see this in Genesis 15, uh, which further unpacks God's covenant with Abraham. You see, the, the very idea of a covenant is, is, is at the heart of what it means to be in relationship with God. God's relationship with people is established in terms of covenant. And God establishes this covenant with Abraham in which God calls Abraham to himself. He gives these promises, these blessings that are to come. And often covenants have this kind of two-party uh, agreement in which one party, usually the powerful party, agrees to do certain things and to bless and protect. And the weaker party agrees to do certain things, usually and some sort of subservient, you know, uh, uh, it's type of role that to the other party, there's this working out of this agreement. Clearly, Abraham and God are not equals. God is all-powerful, and Abraham, is, is at the time of his calling, is this weak uh, little uh, person in the middle of Mesopotamia that God is calling to his promised land. And, and we see in this establishing of a relationship the very pattern for how God relates to, to all of us today. And the very basis of being in relationship with God is founded on grace. Here's, here's the way uh, that, that, uh, that, that I think helps us understand the significance of this. It's the grace of God who makes the promise that matters most. Because the lives of the people God chose often fail to reflect the God who chose them. It's the grace of the God who chooses, uh, and who makes the promise that matters most because often the people he chooses don't reflect the God who chose them. That's, that's what we see time and time again from Abraham throughout the rest of the Old Testament. God in his grace has chosen Abraham. And then Abraham, though we will see his faith tested and him seek to obey God, his faith and, and his, his walk often falls far short of reflecting God. And as we go from Isaac to Jacob down to uh, Judah and so on, we see time and time again the people of God failing to reflect God. A very reminder that it's not our performance for God that makes us acceptable in His sight, but it's the grace of God extended to us freely uh, that enables us to be in relationship with God. You see, Genesis 15 uh, unpacks the promise that God makes uh, to Abraham, and, and the struggle that Abraham had was believing that God could actually even give him a child. Uh, Abraham and Sarah didn't have a child, and they were hoping maybe uh, their servant um, could, could be um, Eleazar of Damascus, could be the heir of their house through whom God would fulfill this promise. And God says, no, I'm going to give you a child. And the struggle to believe this, Abraham uh, seeks, it says in verse 6, we'll come back to this, it says he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness, but Verses 7 through 17 show us how God official, officially establishes his covenant with Abraham. And the way he does this and what would often take place is that um, they would gather animals and those animals would be cut in half. And they would one half of the animal would be lined up over here and the other half would be lined up over here. And the two parties that were making the covenant would take hands and they would walk through the animals um, and it was as if to say, whoever breaks this covenant will end up like these animals. It, it was the way of sealing and offici officially establishing this covenant. And so God does just that. Uh, somewhat funny, actually, uh, in this 
passage. Um, it says, as, uh, as God says to, to Abraham, uh, when Abraham asked God, how shall I know that I'm going to possess this land that you're going to give me, let alone this offspring that you promised? And God says, bring to me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. There's this um, uh, song that we sing in our house for our kids. It's from a uh, an artist a group called Slugs and Bugs. They take uh, really Bible verses and put them to song and help kids uh, learn those songs. They have a show that's on Amazon Prime. And, uh, and one of their songs is called Give Me a Heifer. Um, and it's based off this passage. And it's kind of a fun way to actually remember this passage. But it's not funny so much when you have other people in your home who don't know what the song's about. We had some people working on our basement because of a flood recently. Um, and this song's blaring in the kitchen one day when they come in. It's like, give me a heifer three years old, um, and slightly awkward, uh, but uh, we, we managed to, to switch songs. Uh, but that's that's what's taking place here. That's a side note. Um, now you're going to be singing that little tune all day. Go look up Slugs and Bugs, Give Me a Heifer, uh, and you'll remember Genesis uh, 15, verse, um, verse uh, what is it, Genesis 15, verse verse 8, um, or verse, verse 9, excuse me. Um, but uh, he he tells Abram to bring these animals, and then he's going to establish this covenant. But then watch what happens. He says that uh, in verse 12, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abraham. And behold, a dreadful great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord says to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, theirs and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out. So God's telling Abraham ahead of time, he's going to send them into Egypt. They're going to become a great nation there in Egypt. They're going to become servants, but God is going to judge the nation that makes them servants, is going to bring them out. He says all of this takes place. And as for yourself, he basically says, you're going to die and you're not going to see this come to pass. And when it says in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. And that covenant was to be um, <clears throat> reflected in God, not only giving Abraham offspring, but making his offspring into a great nation to possess a great land and through that nation to ultimately be a blessing to all nations. Why is it significant that, that God symbolized by the smoking pot and the torch was the, the only one to walk down the aisle? Abram was asleep. And there is the sunset. God in his presence, marked by holiness of fire, goes down between the animals alone. God saying, I alone am making this covenant. And it's by my grace that it's established. It's not based on Abraham's performance. It's based on the surety of God's word. And the God who cannot lie will not go back on his promises. God in his grace establishes his covenant relationship with Abraham. And, and we see in the genealogy, I'm, I'm giving you this background to the significance of Jesus being the son of Abraham. But in the genealogy itself, we see that grace is the basis of our relationship with God. Because we see the grace of God on display in the people that show up in Jesus' genealogy. Here we're talking about the Savior of the world, the Son of God, the second person of the triune God, who's eternally existed, has taken on flesh, and Jesus comes into the world, humanly speaking, through this hot mess of a genealogy. Look at the people that show up. First of all, we see Abraham. No doubt God... Uh, 
we see Abraham trust God and take him at his word and leave his homeland and go to the land that God promised. And we're going to see Abraham trust God. But do you know that Abraham had a hard time believing that God could really do it? Genesis 15, what it takes place there is a response to Abraham going, God, can you really give me an offspring? Can we just take my servant? Won't he do? We also see later on he pawns off his wife to a king in order to protect himself. Um, we see uh, Abraham, as he goes on to his, his son, Jacob, the apple doesn't far fall from the tree. Jacob, um, through ultimately Isaac, uh, was known as a deceiver. Uh, who, it, it took God knocking Jacob down for him to come to his senses and, and to finally walk with God. And then Jacob's son Judah is an adulterer who sleeps with who he thinks is a prostitute, but just so happens uh, to be his son's widow who she thought had forgotten him and the promise to give her his, uh, his younger son and had abandoned her not to provide for her. So she dresses up like a prostitute and sleeps with her father-in-law. You talk about um, just messed up, broken people that God uses. And then, then we have the whole list of people, Hezron, Ram, Aminadab, and Nashon, and Salmon, and Boaz, and Obed. We, we know a little bit about Boaz, but pretty much all those other people, we know very little about. And it's just, it struck me this week, the reminder that um, <clears throat> you, can, you can read about these guys in Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 through 22. That's, I think, where we see Matthew pulling this genealogy, portion of the genealogy from. But these guys mostly are nobodies, mostly ordinary people who are caught up in this extraordinary plan of God. We know their names and we know hardly anything else about them. And yet, here they are in the genealogy of Jesus. And then we have Rahab, who uh, is a, uh, a prostitute in, uh, in, in Jericho, who helps Israel when they take the promised land. In fact, she shows more faithfulness uh, to the God of Israel than the many of the Israelites do in trusting God and going into the promised land. And then we have Ruth, who is a Moabite who had a tough lot in life, whose husband dies, and she's away uh, now uh, on her own. And, and rather than staying in her homeland, she follows Naomi back to Israel, uh, trusting not only Naomi, but Israel's Naomi's God, and, and ultimately is married by Boaz, who's a kinsman redeemer. And, and it's through uh, Ruth that we, we ultimately have David that's born, it tells us. The very people in the genealogy of Jesus remind us that grace is the basis of our relationship with God. It was, it was grace uh, that was on display in the very people, humanly speaking, that God used to bring about Jesus' birth into this world. I heard Alistair Begg say it this way. He said, God uses people we wouldn't choose, experiences we wouldn't want, and events we wouldn't plan in order to achieve His eternal plan. People we wouldn't choose, circumstances we wouldn't want, and events we wouldn't plan in order to achieve His eternal plan. I just want to push in just a moment here to say, I don't know uh, what you've gone through uh, this past year, uh, or even this week, but I know we've all gone through something, or all are going through something. We're all walking with a limp like Jacob. We all have some baggage like Judah or Rahab. We all have some sorrows like Ruth. And if we're honest, honest, most of us in the grand scheme of things are unknown folks like salmon, who we might mistake for a fish, right? Like we don't even know anything about these folks. And sometimes we feel that way, just a small little speck in the grand scheme of things. And, and yet no matter what we're walking through, God is there 
and he's working out his plan, the genealogy of Jesus tells us. God is there and he's working out his plan. We only have to look back at this genealogy to be reminded that the grace of God and the sovereignty of God is underneath it all. The grace of God, the sovereignty of God. We can rest in these truths that God is gracious and that God is in control. We can give in to his grace. We can stop working to prove ourselves to him and work ourselves out of our mess. We can receive the grace that's found in Jesus. We don't have to make sense of it all. We can trust God who's making sense of it all. We can trust that God is indeed in control and is working out all things, not only for our good, but for his glory. When we look to the genealogy of Jesus, we see if God can work through this messed up family tree, then he can work through the circumstances that we're facing in our life. We're reminded that, that, that God and his grace have used these people to bring about the birth of our Savior. And the birth of our Savior just reiterates that the only way in which we can know God is the very way in which Abraham knew God. By God's grace. It's God's grace that, that he would open our eyes to see him. It's God's grace that he would stir up in our hearts a desire to pursue him. It's God's grace that you came to faith in Christ. It's God's grace that's sustaining you. It's God's grace that'll get you all the way, the home, all the way home. God establishes uh, a, a people for himself through Abraham, and that shows us that grace is the basis of our relationship with God. But we also see, going back to Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that, that God's promise to Abraham was to bring blessing to all nations through Abraham's offspring. And, and I think it's important to return uh, to this point because we have this statement in Genesis 12, 3 that I, I pointed out earlier that it's through Abraham's offspring that all nations will be blessed in you all the families of the earth will be blessed as uh, as Abraham tells as God tells Abraham here in in this we see the universal plan of God even coming uh, to fruition and, and coming out on the pages of scripture here in Genesis 12 as I said earlier he chose one nation to bring blessing to all nations we we get a glimmer of the promise uh, fulfilled even here in Je Jesus's genealogy we see in Jesus' genealogy the appearance of, uh, of those who, who are, are not Israelites, like Rahab, like Ruth, R Rahab from Jericho, Ruth, a Moabite. We, we also see later on in Bathsheba, who's married to a Hittite. <clears throat> in, in these little glimmers, we see that God's plan includes all nations. We see what was just a glimmer in the genealogy of Jesus burst onto the full pages of Scripture in the commission of Jesus at the end of this gospel. The nations are present in Jesus' genealogy, but in his commission, he sends his disciples to the nations to make known not only Jesus' birth, but his death and his resurrection. When Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. See, Advent reminds us that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. And not just those who are like us, but all people from everywhere. Jesus came first to the house of Israel in fulfillment of the scriptures, and he sends his disciples out to make disciples of all nations. We sing at Advent every year, joy to the world. 
We sing joy to the world because the angels announced, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy for all people. Joy to the world. The Savior has come. His name is Jesus. The the promise that God made to Abraham was to bless all nations through his offspring. But in this, we see further a glimpse of how God is going to bless all nations through Abraham's offspring. And we get that glimpse in Genesis 22. We see not only the the nations that are uh, at the forefront of this promise, but we also see the the sacrifice of a son that's woven in uh, to this promise that God has given Abraham. You see, God promised to bless all nations through the offspring of Abraham. So imagine once God actually gives Abraham an offspring, imagine the astonishment of Abraham when God said, I want you to take your son up on a mountain and I want you to sacrifice him. That's what happens in Genesis 22. We don't have time to, to read it all. I would encourage you to, to read it. But, I mean, if you're tracking here, to become a great nation, you have to have uh, at least one child through whom multiple uh, children are going to be born and a multitude of children are going to be born to have a nation. And here, once he has a child, God's asking him to sacrifice that child. And knowing that struggle... We, we can only imagine what must have gone through Abraham's mind when God says, go sacrifice your son. And at first glance, honestly, when you reread this, if you haven't read this, maybe you read it for the first time, or if you've read this and you've thought to yourself, like, really, God? Like, that's what you're asking him to do? Like, that seems pretty intense. Almost even like, like sadistic, God. Like, why would you do that? To ask Abraham to kill his son. But as we read Genesis 22 and we look at Abraham's response and we see ultimately what God does, we realize that God's plan was never to kill Isaac. We see not only does he test Abraham's faith, but ultimately, uh, as some commentators have stated, this is somewhat of a, a similar to a, a prophetic reenactment uh, in which uh, we, we get a glimpse of, uh, of a pattern uh, of what God is going to do in the future, He does this through Hosea, who marries a who marries a prophet, who marries a prostitute, demonstrating God's covenant faithfulness and love towards His people. And Jeremiah lays on his side for a year, demonstrating the um, the the coming judgment that He's going to bring uh, on Israel. And here we see the same thing. We see through the sacrifice of Isaac, we see the very way in which God is going to to ultimately uh, provide. Uh, in fulfillment of his promise to Abraham. And we know that Abraham, uh, in all of this, was trusting God because after being told to go do this, in Genesis 22, verse 8, it says, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Uh, He says this in response to his son. I love this part where uh, Isaac's carrying the wood uh, and they're with their servants and Abraham's like, okay, guys, you stay here. We're going to go up and make a sacrifice. And, and he says this, we'll come back down. Not me, but we'll come back down. <clears throat> In the plural, referencing both he and Isaac. And Isaac's carrying the wood, you know, good son. He's like, hey, Dad, this is awesome. Like, uh, where's the sacrifice? And in response, Abraham says, God will provide the sacrifice. And up they go. And as Abram, Abraham lays Isaac down on the altar and readies himself to to make the sacrifice, God provides a ram in the thicket. 
And it says that in verse 12, God spoke and he says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went over, took the ram, and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. I love one commentator, Derek Kinder said, he said, others will do exploits, but it is left to this quiet victim, to Isaac, in a single episode to demonstrate God's pattern for his chosen seed, the offspring. Promised in Genesis 3.15, now coming to take on focus in the offspring of Abraham. And what is God's pattern for his chosen seed? It's to be a servant, sacrificed. Others have made this comparison Um, When you look at Isaac and Jesus, both were beloved sons who were long awaited and born by miraculous circumstances. Both sons carry the wood that is to be the instrument of their deaths in their own hands on the way to the sacrifice. And in both cases, the father leads the son and the the son follows obediently towards his own death. But there's one major difference. In the case of Isaac, God provided a lamb in his place. In the case of Jesus, he was the lamb in our place. That's what makes Christmas good news of great joy for all people. Jesus was the lamb, the sacrifice in our place. The grace of God comes to us through the birth of Christ, but ultimately leading to the death of Christ in our place for our sin. And Paul picks up this idea in Galatians chapter 3 as he unpacks the significance of this. And he looks back to Genesis 12.3 and God's promise to bring blessing to all nations through the offspring of Abraham. And he says that this is the gospel shared beforehand. This is the gospel first spoken back in Genesis chapter 12. It says it this way in verse 7, Know then that it is the, that those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles, the nations, by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. God makes a people for himself through Abraham. God promises to bring blessing to all nations through the offspring of Abraham. And who is that offspring? That offspring is Jesus. And it's those who believe in him that share in the blessing of Abraham. Jesus is the son of Abraham who brings blessing and salvation to all nations ultimately through his life and his death and his resurrection. And the fourth thing we see in this is that faith is the proper response. If grace is the foundation of a relationship with God, faith is the proper response to God's grace to us. That's what Paul says in Galatians 3 when he says it's that those who are of faith that are blessed along with Abraham. It's what happened in Genesis 15, 6, when God makes the promise to Abraham, and he says, I'm going to give you a son, and I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abraham, still struggling to believe it, God takes him out and shows him the stars in the heavens, and he says, even more than the the stars in the heavens, so shall your offspring be. And it says in verse 6 of Genesis 15, and he believed the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. 
And when he was on the way to take his son up the mountain to sacrifice him, it says that God will provide. And Hebrews tells us that even even if it meant God raising his son from the dead, Abraham was going to trust God. Faith is the right response to the grace that God shows us. Faith is trusting God. Faith is taking him at his word. Faith is stopping, striving, and resting in God. Faith says that what God has done for me, I couldn't do for myself. Faith says, I know that I'm not the Savior, but I believe Jesus is the one true Savior. Faith says, I know I'm a mess, but God loves me anyway. Faith says that I know I can't change myself, but I come trusting God who alone can change me. The grace of God has been shown to us and that Jesus was the Lamb, the sacrifice in our place. And how should we respond to that but to rest in it, to trust Him, to believe That's what God's called us to. The genealogy of Jesus shows us that the the very grace of God demonstrated to us and the the faith that he calls for from us is it's coming to us as a true story. The genealogy is real people, real circumstances. God has really done all of this to bring about the birth of Jesus. And behind it all is a gracious God who's working out his plan, making a people for himself. And the Bible tells us that this grace can be ours, not by our working for it, but by our receiving it, by our trusting in Jesus. Think about this. Think about the grace of God. God pursued you before you thought of pursuing Him. God didn't pass you up because of your baggage. Think about the grace of God. God loved you when you didn't love Him back. While we were still sinners, He loved us. God warns us of sin and judgment. Not to to make us feel shame, but so that we might be forgiven and have life in His name. The grace of God comes to us and doesn't change even though we constantly do. The grace of God comes to us. And God sacrifices His Son for us even before we're willing to ever make a sacrifice for Him. Grace is the foundation of a relationship with God, and faith is the proper response to God's faith for us. It's elementary, and yet it's woven into the story of Abraham. And Matthew begins his gospel by telling us that Jesus is the son of Abraham. The very people that God began forming through Abraham, he brings its fulfillment in Jesus. And it tells us that that anyone who puts their trust in Jesus can be a part of God's people. And God's plan of blessing all nations through the offspring of Abraham has come to fruition in Jesus. And we as his people now share in that very work of extending this good news of great joy to all people, making it known everywhere to everyone that grace is available and grace is found in Jesus. You see, what happened that night in Bethlehem when Jesus was born was was in many ways not the start of something, but the... Um, but the fulfillment of all that God had promised. We see it coming uh, to fulfillment in the birth of Jesus. The promises made, and now these promises being kept for you and me. And the promises kept that brought about Jesus' birth would ultimately lead to His death in our place and for our sin and His resurrection from the dead. Jesus is the Son of Abraham. 
Jesus brings blessing and salvation to all people from all nations. And this Advent, as I think about this good news that Jesus is the son of Abraham, it, it leaves me <clears throat> to encourage us in, in two ways. There's, there's some, some sermons that lead us to, to really tangible, like do this this week and, uh, and these actions to take. These, these two applications, I, I want to kind of give us broadly to encourage us this Advent season in the, in the busyness, in the rush, in the hectic uh, and crazy um, coming and going that often marks this season and the anxiety about gifts and how much money we have for this or that and the pressure, pressure and stress of figuring out family situations and, uh, and the struggles that go on with work and, the, uh, and just the, the things that you would hope to get done that you haven't gotten done and the, um, often the discouragement that comes as you look back and you try to plan ahead and all, all that marks the season in terms of the, the, the world that we live in. In the midst of all of it, what Advent comes to us and says is that God's grace is way better than you imagine. So this Advent, will you give yourself to spending spending some set-aside time to dwell on God's grace to you? Would you think about and reflect on God's grace? Think about Jesus' birth. Think about Jesus' sacrifice in your place. Think about Jesus' resurrection. Think about all the ways in which God has shown his grace to you personally, as well as all the ways in which the grace of God is expounded in his word. Give some extended time to reflect on the grace of God. But also Advent reminds us that faith stands at the beginning of the Christian life and it carries us along throughout the Christian life. See, you're not a Christian if you haven't put your trust in Jesus as your Savior. If you haven't done that, I pray that today you would do that. Today you would see that this is true. This is the true story of God's grace to us. And if you haven't turned from your sin and trusted in Him, won't you do that today? Won't you admit to God that you're a sinner? Confess your sin to Him. And the Bible says that He is faithful and just and will cleanse you of your sin, will forgive you and cleanse you. And when we confess our sin and put our trust in Him, He, he brings us into His family. We become a part of his people, a part of his family in Christ. But as a believer, I'm also reminded of how important it is for our faith to be nourished and strengthened. The faith in which we stand is, is rooted in the gospel, the grace of God to us in Jesus, 1 Corinthians 15 says. In this we stand. And are we being nourished and strengthened in our faith? So as you give yourself to reflect on the grace of God also, Give yourself to reflect on God's faithfulness to you and His faithfulness to His promises and His Word. Look back at how God has been faithful so that you can be encouraged now to trust Him in the midst of what you're going through. Rather than making plans for, for what's ahead of you based on whatever you think is best, get on your knees and pray to God. Get in community and ask the people of God to encourage you with wisdom. Don't plunge forward, plow forward, in your own wisdom, in your own strength. But trust Him. Spend time in prayer. Spend time discussing and reflecting on His faithfulness in the past and on His promises. See, Advent's an invitation to remember God's grace to us in Jesus and to trust Him. Perhaps for the first time, but especially to continue trusting Him as we walk through whatever we face in this life. Let's pray.